I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. So, when you exercise, you expose your body and mind to this similar set of symptoms, but in a controlled, positive way. So down the road, your body wouldn't automatically think of this set of responses as anxiety, uh, but is more used to that and can be less anxious, if that makes sense, whenever these physical sensations come about. So all of those taken together, uh, these data points, uh, based on that, we can create uh, ideally a holistic, integrative, overlooking plan that not only addresses your psychiatric symptoms, that would be the depressive anxiety symptoms at that time, but also attack the symptoms from other um, viewpoints, including their lifestyles as well. You know, we're trying to focus on work, uh, but we keep our notification open and wow. things keep popping up. We might feel this needs to respond immediately, for example, or, you know, just having that in the back of our mind, just adding things, adding clutters, uh, if you will, to, to our brain. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near infrared for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period. 
and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Hey, listeners, I welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Pospas. She is a devoted listener of the BRAD podcast. She wrote me an interesting note about her unique career path, and we thought we would talk about it, get some interesting insights about the world of psychiatry, particularly telepsychiatry. So she has a private practice consulting with patients all over California where she's based, and she will be your go-to psychiatrist on the go, on Zoom, convenient, easy. And what's great about her is she has this highly integrative approach to psychiatry. I had to actually uh, push and prod her to talk about prescription medication, which we widely believe to be the centerpiece of psychiatric care, Uh, but she's strongly uh, enrolled in the uh, approach of incorporating exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, effective time management, yoga, meditation, breathing to handle the very common prevailing mental health struggles that have escalated, especially in the age of quarantine and the uh, accordant lifestyle disruptions. And those would be anxiety, depression, uh, uh, PTSD, things of that nature, uh, but with a special focus to anxiety and depression because it's so prevalent and growing at such a fantastic rate. And uh, the immediate successful interventions that can occur with something like a simple breathing exercise or a workout uh, will be great takeaways. In fact, she uh, cites research that a single workout can alleviate the acute symptoms of anxiety, and she discusses exactly why uh, using the ancestral health example of what our brains and our uh, neurochemicals, hormones, neurotransmitters are primed for uh, the state of alertness in the fight or flight survival of the fittest circumstances of our past, which now are uh, associated with mobile device usage, uh, the comparison culture of social media. Uh, she talks at length about imposter syndrome, and you hear that term all the time bantered about. I had a vague idea of what it meant, but we're going to get into an interesting definition from a psychiatrist, why it's become so prevalent and what we can do to kind of uh, combat that and get our heads in the right spot, get out of our own way, uh, be proud of our accomplishments, but of course not trend too far over into the other direction to where we become arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic. So uh, you're going to learn a lot about um, balance in the brain, in life, and a nice chat with Dr. Sarah Pospis uh, at lifestyletelepsychiatry.com. And she is a, a official training in the specialties of sports and perinatal psychiatry. She's a former student athlete, so she works with athletes in that on that level. Um, she's published a lot of work on the topics of burnout, anxiety, and depression. And she's worked and studied at UCLA, UC San Diego, UC Santa Barbara, USC. And when I hear UCSB, where I went to school, and UCLA, where I was born, I'm like, okay, come on, I'm, uh, I'm in, you, you got me. So here she is on the show. 
She's going to talk about some work-life balance with her own personal example at the end. But at the start, you heard a little shout out for uh, some of her work-life balance, and that would be her two children under the age of two. Uh, I thought I detected a little bit of shout out um, from some fans in the other room, and that was so cute. I'm usually listening for barking dogs in today's era of Zoom technology and remote meetings, and then I'll ask what kind of breed and stuff, but I don't think that was a dog this time. Uh, but here's a very busy, enthusiastic, and progressive uh, medical practitioner, Dr. Sarah Pospos. Dr. Sarah Pospos, thank you for joining me on the show. Of course. Thank you so much, Brad, for having me. Such an honor. Yeah. Um, pretty exciting messages we've exchanged, especially with your, uh, your training and your area of work. It seems like the cutting edge of medicine, and that's so exciting because I think we're all trying to um, reconcile the challenges, the problems, the narrowness of traditional medical treatment. Um, we're into the ancestral health scene, progressive ideas and things like that. Uh, but of course, we have a lot to, um, to, to synchronize here to get uh, optimal care. And so I think I would love for you to uh, introduce yourself and talk about your training and how you kind of ended in this uh, current model of practicing perinatal psychiatry and sports psychiatry and doing it uh, from this new remote model that allows it to be accessible to more people. Absolutely. So hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Pospos, as Brad mentioned. Um, I completed my psychiatry residency as a chief resident at UCLA Kern, um, and I've published uh, quite a bit as well uh, on the subject of burnout and depression at places like UCLA, UCSD, and UC Santa Barbara. As a psychiatrist, um, I am devoted to helping high performers optimize and balance their lives through exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, efficient time management techniques, and other sustainable lifestyle, which is very much in line with my expertise in both perinatal psychiatry and sports psychiatrist, sports psychiatry. So currently, I'm only serving patients uh, by telehealth, uh, which just means that the visits are done virtually, 100% virtually, um, in California. But uh, for non-California residents, I also do offer free resources on all things lifestyle um, psychiatry uh, on my website, lifestyletelepsychiatry.com. So it sounds like uh, your patients are people looking for something different than the traditional model, the often criticized model of uh, going to see a psychiatrist for a very short visit, getting prescribed medication, and then um, the essential role being just kind of tweaking the medications rather than bringing in all these other aspects that you mentioned about lifestyle, diet, sleep, um, all the important things that might affect your psychiatric health. Yes, uh, definitely. So, you know, in addition to the, like you mentioned, the traditional psychiatry care that we're all perhaps familiar with, uh, I also would like to emphasize the lifestyle factors of things um, through things like in nutrition, um, exercise, sleep, optimizing sleep, and all those uh, good stuff. Because as you probably can imagine in psychiatry, uh, most, if not all of the conditions are chronic, right? So just like we would think of common chronic uh, other common chronic conditions like diabetes, for example. Yes, uh, medication might help, but in addition to that, what if um, someone doesn't take care of their diets, continue to take 
a lot of highly processed sugary food. What if someone's not physically active, you know, their insulin hormone that took care of uh, the glucose response in the body wouldn't work as much. What if someone's not sleeping enough or is under constant stress, um, their stress hormone, the cortisol would be through the roof and also affects all this thing in their body in relation to the glucose response. Uh, so similarly, like you mentioned, uh, in mental health, just adding this tweaks, uh, lifestyle tweaks can really um can really, you know, improve their mental health uh, as a whole as well. So what are we missing here with the traditional view of these uh, conditions and treatments? You know, we talk about anxiety, depression at record rates. We had COVID, the quarantine, which disrupted a lot of people, young and old, having to recalibrate and missing out on rich social interactions and things that improve our mental health. Um, but where do these pieces fit together when um, someone comes in with a clinical diagnosis of anxiety, depression, whatever it is, PTSD? Um, how can we uh, how can, how can we intervene both from the the medication side and the lifestyle side? What, how how closely related are those? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, so that's a very good question. So typically in psychiatry, um, our first visit uh, is dedicated to get get to know you, right? Uh, in terms uh, of not only your, your current symptoms, so for instance, that would be your depression symptoms, your anxiety symptoms, or what have you, but also uh, your life in general. Uh, so, you know, what's your family background, for instance, um, what's your occupations, uh, how far did you go to school, and things like that including your lifestyle. So how's your sleep uh, typically look like, you know, your um, physical activity level in general, your nutrition and whatnot. Um, so all of those taken together, uh, these data points, uh, based on that, we can create uh, ideally a holistic, integrative overlooking plan that not only address your psychiatric symptoms, so that would be the depressive anxiety symptoms at that time, but also attack the symptoms from other um, viewpoints, including their lifestyles as well, so that we optimize all the mental health outcomes that we're looking for. So that would be your mood, your um, stress level or anxiety level, your sleep, your energy level, which all ties up together uh, in terms of what you're experiencing in the end. So you're certainly going to recommend uh, your patient get sufficient sleep, get up with the sun, get some sun exposure, do some physical exercise, which has been proven to work better than um, SSRIs to, to combat depression. Um, but what are some of the challenges when people, maybe maybe they know what to do, um, but they're too depressed or anxious to adhere to healthy eating strategies or exercise uh, protocol? Yes, great question. So I would probably take that into two parts. Um, so as of right now, specifically for depression, perhaps uh, exercise um, specifically is proven to be effect as effective as medication or as effective as uh, talk therapy, uh, mm. you know, but not necessarily in replacement of, of those, if indicated, of course. Uh, in psychiatry, we always... Uh, try to see it on a case-by-case -case basis uh, in terms of treatment-wise, whether they need medication, whether they need talk therapy, whether they need a uh, lifestyle changes approach or a combination of both, which typically is uh, the most ideal uh, way to go. 
And then in terms of the second part of it is in terms of if they're in the middle of the depression or in the middle of, uh, you know, feeling down, hopeless, um, not motivated, which could be very well part of their depressive symptoms, right? It's definitely very hard to um, introduce an quote unquote added task like exercising, making sure that they get enough sleep and whatnot. Uh, so perhaps uh, one or two possible solutions to that is one, just start small. We don't necessarily have to attack all this checklist, so to speak, at the same time. So perhaps just um, try to improve their sleep first uh, by using you know, one tip, for instance, avoiding coffee before noon. Uh, that might be a start. And then as they go up with that momentum, we could start in introducing more stuff. Uh, that way it's less overwhelming and they're more likely uh, to get a buy-in on that. The second tip would be, um, since we're simultaneously going to treat them, treat the depression as well, once the they're not in the peak of the depression, so once the symptoms start to get better, uh, then uh, we could be in a better place to have that conversation on how to optimize their lives in other aspects as well. What do you see are the, the major areas where we are going astray in modern life, uh, you know, with your uh, your total client base. Ooh, that's a good point. Uh, I'm glad you bring that up. I think perhaps in terms of lifestyle uh, in general, it has switched quite a bit, right? From mm. from um, before, especially perhaps with COVID too. So just on top of my head, uh, after COVID, uh, a lot of work has turned to be remote work, uh, which means, for instance, for parents, they have to juggle their home life with their work life simultaneously. Um, you know, perhaps it's a bit harder to put a, uh, a separation in terms of being on call, so to speak, for work 24-7 versus before when they have to go into the office. Uh, so with that, it comes with lifestyle changes. Uh, perhaps their sleep get affected. Uh, because of less work-life balance, th their stress level continues to increase. Uh, and because of this busy, busy lifestyle, it's hard to pay attention uh, to to get in that exercise, the recommended amount of exercise that's needed, or to eat healthier in terms of their nutrition factor. And what role does the medication play in the story? And how... Um... You know, what, what have you seen has been the most successful interventions from that side, uh, assuming that we're also telling the, the, the patient to get enough sleep, get sunlight, get exercise? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, very much a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, most of it determined perhaps uh, one, one important consideration is their symptoms, right? So the more severe the symptom is, perhaps the treatment would be more complicated and that might include medications. Uh, but uh, having said that, I just wanted to emphasize that sometimes medication, only medication is not enough. Uh, we sh probably should also pay attention and um, highlight the importance of changing these lifestyle habits in addition to medications when indicated to, just to get that more compound effect uh, of both intervention. Uh, and so I wonder if that, uh, that philosophy has caused you, compelled you to depart from your uh, traditional training model 
where I, I don't know uh, what role those play when you're when you're going through psychiatric residency and so forth. Um, maybe tell me if if there is some increased awareness these days to the lifestyle elements, or uh, is this stuff that you have to bring in outside of your medical training and certification? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think we, you know, through medical school um, and medical training, we all learn about the importance of um, things like exercise, how it affects the brain, how it affects the body, of course, the mind-body connections and whatnot, for example. But having said that in practice, uh, there's a lot of limitation, uh, perhaps. Uh, one, for instance, just the time, right? Sometimes the time uh, is not enough to not only get to know the patients, address the complaints, mm. um, talk about the intervention uh, or the treatment that we wanted to um, move forward with, but also to get just in depth uh, in terms of trying to get to know their lifestyle in this case and counsel them as well in terms of what to do with with those lifestyle changes. So I think the knowledge is there. It's just sometimes in, in practice, it's hard to implement at times because of those um, restrictions or those limitations. Yeah, so what uh, compelled you to kind of launch this new model of telepsychiatry and also include all these other um, elements into the, into the healing process? Yes, yeah, so... Perhaps it's the overarching teams um, that I have. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm devoted to helping high performers to help optimize and balance their lives, right? Um, with using this lifestyle technique, uh, sustainable, not only a one-time lifestyle technique uh, adjustments too. Um, so in order to do that, I'm glad you touch on the telesci component. Most of this high performers uh, have busy lifestyles, right? Uh, time is very, very valuable and limited. So with telepsychiatry, perhaps it could be a solution uh, in terms of at least those addressing those valuable time. Instead of having to commute back and forth to your doctor's office and mm -hmm. having to wait to be seen in the doctor's office, uh, you could simply just be available for your set appointment time and instead use those time you know, to do your work, do your errands, do everything else that you might need to do um, and save uh, time that way. So the access in terms of convenience uh, could potentially be a solution in this, um, you know, type of group, the high performers group. Well, you're also being able to seek out um, the ideal um, medical guide wherever you live. Uh, I mean, California is a big place and um, that's that's probably the the best factor is that these progressive opportunities exist now um, for 39 million people or whatever our uh, whatever the population is in California. Absolutely, and I'm really glad you brought that um, topic up too because in telepsychiatry, like you said, we just need to be in the in the specific state. So let's say California, for instance, um, if you have to travel, you know, back and forth from LA. SF, San Diego, what have you, as long as you're still in California, you can still keep your appointment um, and not miss it and not, you know, having to go through the hassle of finding a different doctor, starting from scratch and things along those lines. Now, how does this work in the traditional insurance uh, provider 
model. I know we have a lot of cutting edge uh, physicians that are practicing outside the model. And so you're doing cash pay for your stem cell therapy. It's quite expensive. It's limited to uh, people in the high income category, but can we uh, obtain, I mean, do, do you, do you take insurance from carriers for your practice or how does that work? And people like you, obviously. Yes. So currently in my practice, no, uh, we're out of network, meaning we don't take any insurance. Uh, it's cash based. Um, so what it means for, for the patients, uh, at least are three things. Um, one, it's personalized care. And what I mean by that is, as you probably all know, um, sometimes insurance posts a certain restrictions that may or may not affect um, direct patient care, right? So just as an example, um, some insurance wouldn't allow the psychiatrist, the doctor uh, to do things like additional things like talk therapy, addressing this lifestyle and recommending a lifestyle intervention uh, in addition of the regular uh, prescribing medication practice. Some insurance might not cover certain medications that could be a better fit for a patient. And uh, because of the amounts of paperwork uh, that are needed <laughs> back and forth by the insurance, those time that um, you know is dedicated for direct patient care might be diverted into uh, pa doing paperwork um, and whatnot. Uh, the second benefit, perhaps, is getting a more confidential care, and by that I mean um, the it, as long as you're with an insurance, of course, your medical records become permanently become parts of associated with that insurance. So when it time when the time comes to apply for let's say life insurance, disability insurance, and what have you, uh, it may or may not affect your eligibility um, to apply for those. And then the third point is uh, in terms of telepsychiatry or telemedicine setting that we already talked about earlier, some insurance may or may not um, reimburse or pay for that. Uh, so just give much freedom um, and option in terms of you know, how we want the psychiatric care to be uh, when you're considering cash-based or out-of-network psychiatric practice. So we're getting the freedom, the flexibility, the more personalized uh, relationship. And do you see uh, us heading in that direction smoothly in the years to come? Or is this going to be a big challenge to kind of topple the traditional model where you're into a very more regimented system with limited options less time with the physician one-on-one -on -one and all those other uh, less privacy sort of thing? I believe so. Um, before COVID, some had already started um, mm. telepsychiatry or telemedicine um, visits. And of course, uh, a lot of places had already been out of network with insurance as well. But uh, since COVID, as you probably can imagine, we all just have to scramble, right? Uh, the in-person healthcare settings just all have to scramble into telemedicine at least for that uh, part amount of time. So yes, I definitely see this uh, heading towards that direction in the future. Um, right. The, the insurance carriers are going to have to look to these solutions, especially because mm -hmm. they, they are more economical in many ways. We don't have a giant fancy office on the 11th floor for Dr. Sarah because uh, we don't <laughs> need it and uh, you don't need it. And so it, it does seem more efficient, but it seems like we have some hurdles to cross over because there's so much paperwork and all that nonsense that we're subjected to um, in the uh, in in the um, traditional care model. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. 
So you've published a lot on burnout, anxiety, depression, and I'm wondering um, some of that research and, and commentary. Are you um, touting the success of diet, nutrition, sleep, stress management in, in conjunction with medication, or what's some of that? Uh, what are some of the high points that you've discovered through your research and publishing? Yes, uh, great question. So I did allude to, to some of the lifestyle approaches, mainly yoga and meditation uh, within that research, not so much in depth uh, of the other aspect yet, <laughs> because at that time I was focusing, you know, solely on, on burnout and depression and uh, mm -hmm. those side of things in a more traditional approach, so to speak. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's definitely connect connection, strong connection uh, with lifestyle changes uh, and common psychiatric uh, conditions that we came across, including, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, um, even extending to substance use, ADHD, and all the other uh, common conditions in psychiatry as well. So where does yoga and meditation fit? What kind of results have you seen for what conditions and so forth? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of exercise, specifically, the most well-researched uh, type uh, if you will, is actually aerobics, but yoga and meditation does definitely have benefits, uh, as you can imagine, in, in depression, anxiety, and other common illnesses. And the reason for that is uh, several fold. So first, uh, you know, as you know, yoga has many components, right? There's the um, adopting a certain posture component. There's a breathing component. There's also mindfulness that uh, that's often incorporated into yoga practice as well. Um, so each of these have different specific roles, but in general, to quote unquote oversimplify it, uh, it affects not only the mind, but also the body. For instance, uh, for one, it stimulates uh, what we call BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor um, called a miracle growth for your brain, if you will, uh, which just stimulates um, the new neuron, new nerve cells in the brain. Uh, to come up and also improve their connection, um, you know, their um, functions, and also uh, just kind of their connectivity to one another in a long-term basis. And then uh, secondly, perhaps uh, this is a bit more familiar with others too, uh, it, instead of activating our fight and flight response, which uh, is associated with what we call quote-unquote sympathetic uh, response, it activates the opposite, which is parasympathetic response. And that's uh, the system that lower your heart rate, lower your breathing rate when you're feeling anxious, activates the uh, part of your brain that enables you to, to think clearly instead of just living in fear and trying to escape the situations, for example, and many other benefits that, uh, that comes with yoga and meditation as well. Yeah, I love that insight about boosting your brain neuron function, brain-derived neurotrophic factor coming from movement activity. One of the most prominent studies from UCLA. Hey, da, da, da. <laughs> so I, I believe it was uh, groups of elderly where one group walked fewer than 4,000 steps per day. Uh, so that's kind of uh, trending toward that sedentary lifestyle. And then the other group walked uh, significantly more than that. And they had larger, better functioning brains into their old age, um, basically bringing the takeaway insight that humans are meant to move and we need that everyday activity 
to connect directly with improved brain function. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the most interesting part as well, uh, specifically in mental health, they, uh, a research mentioned just one hour per week for aerobic exercise can help protect you against uh, depression. And just one bout of exercise, so one episode of exercise, uh, does appear to decrease your anxiety level as well. A, a single workout can yes, go and just a single yeah, blow off workout. some steam, some energy. Um, so what's going on at the, you know, the biological level there? The anxiety is sort of a, I, I'm, I'm guessing like, you know, an overactive brain or something where uh, engaging in exertion will will turn off this um, this faucet or what's going on? Yeah, so perhaps it's it's helpful to look back a bit, right? So anxiety in our ancestors' world mm. back then, uh, one of its function is to uh, let us know about uh, threat to our survival. So for instance, in the hunting world, uh, if a bear were to come and attack us, our anxiety uh, try to tell our brain that, hey, there's a threat to our survival in that way. And the brain, uh, in reaction to that, turns on all the other uh, body responses, which might include increasing your heart rate, kind of increasing your uh, alertness, so to speak, increasing your breathing rate and whatnot, the fight or flight um, or sympathetic response. Um, so how exercise might help? Uh, a lot of ways. One is the BDNF factors of things, which just improves your brain function. Two, uh, it activates the pers- uh, you know, it activates the part of your brain that think more clearly versus the quote unquote ones associated with your fear. But perhaps specifically for anxiety, an interesting part is um, in case of anxiety or panic attacks, your bo- if you're so used to it, your brain might perceive bodily sensations that could uh, be similar in panic attacks and exercising. And what I mean by that are uh, those responses like high um, heart rate, mm. higher heart, heart rate, um, higher breathing rate and whatnot, and interpreted as a sign of anxiety. So when you exercise, you expose your body and mind to this similar set of symptoms, but in a controlled positive way. So down the road, your body wouldn't automatically think of this set of responses as anxiety, uh, but is more used to that and can be less anxious, if that makes sense, whenever these physical sensations come about. Oh, that's great. I've, I've never quite heard it described that way, but it's, um, I guess, you know, I've, I've heard of exposure therapy too, where you have anxiety about talking to people. And so uh, Dr. Craig Marker, former guest on the show, psych- psychologist in Atlanta, he takes uh, patients to uh, the supermarket uh, parking lot front entrance uh, where the solicitors are, you know, looking for money or whatever. And um, he just has them greet people and say hi. And so they're exposed to their biggest fear. And I suppose like going out and doing a workout when you're having, uh, when you're experiencing high anxiety, you're now um, simulating with the heart rate, with the cortisol, with all these things. And then uh, I suppose, especially when you complete the workout and return to a rested state, now you're telling your your, your brain, uh, your emotions that you can handle it. It's okay. Uh, the workout's over, uh, and, and that's a a proxy for the anxiety being over. Is that a, is that a relevant insight? Yes, exactly. It's like exactly like you said. Um, it's pretty much 
exposure, quote unquote. But the key is it's a systematic right exposure. We wouldn't, you know, just have uh, in this case have someone uh, do it from a scale of zero to hundred. We wouldn't just have them do a hundred immediately. But it's systematic, and then it's associated with a positive controlled environments, of course, uh, and uh, it's similar to that analogy, definitely. Unless, you know, you go out for a jog and uh, a bear or a pit bull actually does chase you, then it's going to be an ineffective <laughs> anxiety treatment to go for a workout. We're, we're expecting a pleasant workout where you're on a nice trail and waving hi to <laughs> other joggers or whatever controlled setting we're talking about, the Peloton bike in the comfort of your living room, no honking horns, no uh, exhaust blowing at you or buses cutting you off. I got it. Okay, great. I've also exactly. um, read that um, a immersion into cold water, which is something I'm, I'm a fan of. Uh, this cold water immersion represents an instant cure for anxiety as well. I'm wondering if you've heard that, or if that's the same mechanism that a strenuous or a vigorous workout would would um, offer. Good point. I am actually not familiar with that, but I'll be sure to check that out. Um, in terms of cold water. Yeah, the, the cold thermogenesis, be... like the um, therapeutic cold exposure um, to prompt, I mean, obviously it prompts a fight or flight reaction when you jump into cold water, uh, but then as soon as you get out, then you have that recalibration. Um, I'm thinking of a, a recent guest on the show, Dr. Anna Lemke, author of Dopamine Nation, where she talks about this concept of opponent process reaction, where if you put yourself through something difficult and challenging, um, you are getting like sort of a rebound effect uh, in the brain toward uh, sensations of pleasure, calmness, and all these things. So when we're going and doing a, a vigorous workout, uh, we're looking at that rebound effect where we have that uh, sensation of calmness as opposed to maybe, um, you know, pre-workout state of anxiety because we've been sitting around worrying about our uh, problems and uh, stressing over the future. Right, right. Definitely. That would make perfect sense. Um, and also to touch on that as well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because exercise not only have, of course, the biological quote unquote benefit, right, but also psychological side of things too. And that could include a sense of mastery. So whenever, mm. you know, let's say someone completed one session and then the next day completed another session and so forth, uh, it just builds on on their sense of mastery, uh, which would, of course, impact their self-confidence, self-esteem and all the other good stuff uh, as a whole as well. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near infrared for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation. 
where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The the benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. So uh, would other things fall into this category, like uh, doing an art uh, project, uh, making a drawing making a, a clay uh, a formation uh, in the studio or, or something where you're expressing um, artistic energy and, and trying to gain form of mastery. I wouldn't call it mastery, but I do these clay dogs that are pretty good, but they're not perfect. So I feel like I'm building uh, a semi-mastery and getting a completely different uh, experience than a physical workout. But I'm also wondering if there's, I mean, you mentioned uh, yoga and meditation, which are, you know, quite different than um, the, um, the, the lifting the weights or running down the street. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I believe so. So, you know, anytime we put in time uh, or energy towards one uh, goal, in this case, the, the art part, right? Um, we could just build on those momentum in terms of trying to build our sense of mastery or uh, in relation to self-esteem, um, self-confidence in our ability to problem solve ourselves and uh, things along those lines too. So I guess it's really getting out of your, your um, getting out of your head, getting mm -hmm. out of your inactive state. I would assume anxiety and depression are strongly associated with inactivity rather than the uh, rash of, uh, of bicycle riders who experience depression while they're pedaling up a hill. I, I don't think that exists as much. I never thought about that either, where um, if you can just get moving in some way and get into some project, you're going to be um, in pursuit of uh, self-confidence, mastery, and, um, and an ensuing uh, improvement in your symptoms. 
Yes, and uh, perhaps another aspect to add is the social aspect to right? Because mm. with exercise, arts, or other um, project, similar projects, you also add that social stimulation um, to the brain too, which not only helps prevent withdrawal which is uh, or isolation, which is very common in depression, let's mm. say, but also get more input in terms of stimulation to your brain, which goes a long way too. Um. Dr. Sarah, we haven't talked much about drugs yet. I mean, come on, everyone's excited to talk to the psychiatrist. I'm wondering, um, it is really uh, refreshing and wonderful that you're leading with all these other concepts, uh, but I'm wondering um, you know, what are the role that these play? Do you feel like they're overused, overprescribed, as we often hear about, used as a crutch? Um, what is, you know, What does a winning formula look like in the event that, um, and I want you to talk about athletes too, uh, because um, sometimes athletes need uh, prescriptions or they're uh, real people. We just saw the great Noah Lyles break the American record last night in the 200 meters at the world championships. And he's been public about his um, challenges with battling depression and so forth. Um, not sure if he mentioned uh, medication as part of his part of his battles, uh, but you would assume so if he's um, been, been public about it and been under treatment. So um, where do all these pieces fit in? And I, I think I'm really looking for like, what are the best use of these amazing breakthroughs that we have in pharmaceutical medicine today? Yeah, that's a very loaded question, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Woo, woo, loaded. <laughs> uh, so in, in psychiatry, uh, perhaps just to give a background, like I mentioned, typically when we first see a patient, uh, we did this thorough evaluation, right, on mm. um, getting to know them and their symptoms, uh, you know, everything about their symptoms and their lifestyle that could contribute to what's happening to them right now. Now, Sarah, that, does that happen mm-hmm. in traditional framework? So if you're taking your first visit to the psychiatrist at an HMO or a major provider mainstream, uh, are you going to have that sit down where they're going to get to know you and see if you're um, your, your mother-in-law is really annoying you or, you know, those kind of things. (laughs) Wow. That's a very good question. Um, I would say yes, uh, every psychiatrist would try to, Mm. uh, but again, time is, uh, of course, uh, the session in terms of time is of sometimes could be a limiting factor in terms of how depth, um, can you go in, in just those first session, right? That's why, especially in psychiatrists, I think it's important to um, keep your follow-up if you can with the same doctor because it's like piecing uh, different pieces of the puzzle together uh, and long times so you could you know just get to know each other more more and more that way um, but after this psychi- what we call psychiatric evaluation so the interview part then we together would determine what kind of conditions do you have of course again it's a case-by-case basis so based on this information, we would determine, for example, if you have depression, if you have anxiety, if you have both, if you have other conditions. And based on that uh, and the severity of the symptoms, for the most part, then we can discuss more about treatment. So in psychiatry, treatment uh, could consist a lot of things. Uh, there's, of course, the options of talk therapy, especially if your symptoms are on the milder side. Uh, so that includes things like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and other types of therapy. Uh, if Typically, if your symptoms is more on the severe side, uh, on a more serious side, we might uh, also utilize medication uh, depending on your condition. So for example, for depression, we'll use antidepressant. For anxiety, we'll use anti-anxiety and so forth. 
Um, or we could, if you're open to it, we could, uh, and it's indicated, we could do combination combination of both. Um, lifestyle, ideally, the lifestyle part of it, lifestyle counseling uh, would always help no matter which way uh, we choose, whether it's medication, whether it's talk therapy, whether it's combination, because again, uh, it's just a sustainable investment in your health, both physical and mentally um, with, with that regards. Uh, in terms of athletes, those sports-related uh, medica- psych medications, I would say it just have a lot of more um, subtle nuances for several reasons. One, perhaps, perhaps an athlete would be um, would have some consideration in taking certain medications because that medications might inadvertently affect their performance. So it could go either way. Uh, if the medication happened to improve their athletic performance, let's say. Uh, it helped reduce tremor, uh, like in the case of propanolol, it might be prohibited in certain sports, right? That where fine movement is of importance, like uh, archery, shooting, things like that. And, and so, of course, an athlete wouldn't want to be taking a medication that would lead them into trouble unknowingly in, in that scenario. Or a medication might have side effects that on the other hand, impair their performance. So let's say medications that cause weight gain, that lowers your heart rate, it might affect uh, sports, endurance-related sports, for instance, uh, and therefore might impair your athletic performance. Uh, so that's why I think uh, perhaps it's a better fit if you're an athlete and is concerned about that to uh, get in touch with sports psychiatrists because those specific medication concerns can be addressed in, in more depth. Now, are you using talk therapy as one of your tools, your protocol, or are you uh, referring that out? Great question. So in terms of the traditional uh, full session of talk therapy, I refer it out, uh, but I do try to use some components, uh, if and when is necessary, of talk therapy within uh, my visit. Um, you know, this is. Um, this is super cutting edge. It's it, it's amazing stuff, and um, I suppose you're still going through, um, you know, these these um, traditional protocols of how to treat a patient, and you're uh, applying a diagnosis to them. And I'm I'm curious about that whole world of diagnosing mental health conditions and what this continuum represents from someone who has a label uh, such as you have. Uh, anxiety, you have PTSD, you have, uh, you are bipolar, you are uh, depressed. And then um, what, at what point can we switch over to uh, a model or a belief system where you are exhibiting symptoms of depression, which you can alleviate immediately with a walk around the block, um, even going to more extreme, uh, like bipolar is believed to be a pretty hardcore diagnosis, uh, but Amber O'Hearn, a leader in the carnivore diet space, has talked publicly about um, being virtually free of symptoms and free of medication after having um, you know, a very serious condition of bipolar for a long time. Through uh, she, she points to dietary intervention as her main way of essentially curing herself, curing herself from this illness by virtue of not having any symptoms nor medication. Yeah, I think uh, definitely the first step I would say would be to recognize the symptoms, uh, meaning 
let's say depression, for example, you know, everyone feels down sometimes, right? Whenever something in our life happened, uh, sometimes we feel sad, we feel blue um, and whatnot. But when exactly does it considered uh, quote unquote depression? Uh, so typically in terms of psychi- uh, when to seek psychiatric help, when, well, first, let me back up. In terms of depression, perhaps, like you said, it's a spectrum. Uh, no one has the exact same symptoms, you know, uh, in comparison, like A to B would be exactly the same. But some common symptoms to watch out for might be feeling down for most of the days, mm. uh, not enjoying things that you like to enjoy before your hobbies, for instance, having uh, trouble concentrating, uh, sleeping, eating, feeling hopeless a lot of times, beating yourself up over some mistakes to feel excessively guilty about something, for instance, and things along those lines. And especially when these things, these symptoms um, have caused intense, severe distress, or if they interfere in your day-to-day. So that could look like it might affect your work, your relationship, your grades if you're a student, then it's a good time to seek psychiatric help. Uh, so let's say that you meet this criteria where you're not depressed for an hour after a, a disappointing <laughs> phone call, but it's really dragging you down and it's becoming a pattern and it's interfering with everyday life activities. So you, uh, uh, a diagnosis is applied and you're suffering from depression. I'm wondering um, at what point are these similar to your diagnosis of uh, cancer of the throat versus um, something that's um, a, a symptom and the cause is uh, these seven things that you can correct immediately. One of them being um, in the case of anxiety, you go and conduct a workout and you no longer are in representing symptoms of anxiety. And we can mm-hmm. build from there into just these are uh, behaviors or um, present circumstances that don't represent a, a label on the person. Great question. So perhaps the best way to differentiate it is uh, to see a psychiatrist. Why? Mm -hmm. Because uh, uh, those would be things that we consider uh, during our psychiatric interview, that initial, that first interview. Uh, Because like you said, uh, you know, it it could be a lot of things, right? Depression could, for one, is multifactorial. There could be many causes. Uh, We could also consider things like currently, is there any specific stressors in your life that might quote unquote, trigger that depression or, you know, make yourself sad uh, in this case, like the phone call. We might also consider uh, more information like your history. Has this ever happened in the past? How, If so, how long has that been? What other symptoms did you experience then? Um, we might also consider your family history, um, if there's depression in a family or your medical history, because some medical conditions might look like depression. Um, you know, let's say low thyroid hormone or um, you know, low uh, iron anemia, which may mani- be manifested as feeling tired all the time, for instance. Uh, so it's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that needs to be puzzled together, uh, that need to be pieced together. And then in terms of intervention, which would be the next step of that, uh, again, it just depends on on your particular situation. So it's an individual uh, basis, so to speak. Uh, depending on the severity of the symptoms, your other medical conditions, if applies, um, your current life stressors, 
uh, and things along those lines are very important too. So today, uh, with the accelerating pace of technology and the exponential increase in technology, meaning that in the last one year, technology has advanced more than the previous 10 years combined in many ways, which has advanced more than the previous 100 years. So we're having to navigate and negotiate these extreme changes in our lifestyles. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm old enough to reference the, uh, a, a good chunk of my life where I existed before uh, the internet, before mobile devices and all these things. So I have reference points of when you know, we sit around on the porch and talk uh, to, to burn a few hours of time where that doesn't happen anymore because we're all connected to devices and, and so forth. So you know, I've had to navigate these challenges personally even in my career, for example, working on writing a book. And in the old days, that would mean going to the library, checking out four or five hardcover books, bringing them home, uh, thumbing through them, bookmarking, taking handwritten notes, uh, trying to work on a manuscript. And now you're just cranking with uh, 11 uh, browser windows open, getting all the information you need at your fingertips and proceeding at you know a breakneck speed to crank out more and more content. And then, of course, we're consuming more and more content than ever before. So mm-hmm. uh, this, it seems to have a overall uh, detrimental effect on mental health because it's so difficult to adjust and navigate, although there are many positive aspects to it. And so I want to frame the conversation, uh, not coming out and saying, social media is terrible. So are mobile devices because um, they're pretty awesome in so many ways. But I think it's a matter of taking control of the situation, using them to our advantage, using them to give us uh, the the life that we're dreaming about and the pleasure and the enjoyment and the satisfaction and none of the negative stuff. So um, in your practice and in your observation, what are some of the things that are are, are tripping us up here with um, technology relating to burnout and how are some of the ways that we can um, navigate this successfully and make them uh, positives? 100%. 100%. That's such an important point uh, to discuss, I believe. So just a couple of things uh, right right off the bat. Uh, in terms of notifications, whether it's email notifications, social media notifications, news in general that pops up in our phone, it could very much be anxiety-provoking, right? Like you said, we're continued to live in that space where nothing stops. Literally, we're bombarded with information. And... Uh, you know, sometimes if it's on the news, it might not be the, the best information in terms of ha- quote unquote happy information, right? It might be, you know, disturbing inf- information, so to speak. So that could very much impact our um, just mental space in general. Uh, and this notifications also is very much anxiety provoking in a sense that, like you said, we're not in control, in full control of our time, of our time, if I could put it that way. Let's say, you know, we're trying to focus on work, uh, but we keep our notification open. And mm-hmm. things keeps popping up, we might feel this needs to respond immediately, for example, or you know, just having that in the back of our mind, just adding things, adding clutters, uh, if you will, to, to our brain um, in that way. And then the other thing, uh, the second thing is also the comparison side of things, especially with social media. It's very hard to not uh, intentionally or unintentionally compare yourself to what's going on out there, what other people are doing, their achievements. Um, you know, uh, their lifestyle, whatever's going on in their life. Uh, so the comparison piece is definitely huge. It could very much lead to not only burnout, perhaps, in a sense that 
um, you know, you're having to, to quote unquote, compete all the time, but also uh, might lead to what we call imposter syndrome. Uh, for those of you who's uh, not familiar with the term, uh, it typically happens to high achievers when they have this almost selective attention where they uh, attributed all their success, even though there's a lot to luck, to things like luck, help from others, just anything outside themselves. But whenever they hit a wall, they attributed it to the fact, quote unquote, fact that they're not competent, they're, they're not good enough. Um, so that could very much be triggered uh, by this comparison uh, as well. So the symptoms of imposter syndrome are going out of your way to uh, diffuse um, a, a, a credit or, or, or you know, credit for your accomplishments, you know, effusive in your uh, gratitude and um, uh, pointing to luck and so forth is one. And then the other one is um, when you struggle, um, you, you internalize it that um, the reason you're struggling is because you don't deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you hear exactly. that term bantered about all the time, but I never really reflected on deeply on the definition. Now, uh, where does this sort of thing originate from as a prominent condition these days when, um, you know, you, you went through a heck of a lot of training to become a psychiatrist. So you went through years and years of medical school residency. Um, you, you probably have a memory of those hard times and all the hard work that you put in. How could you possibly, uh, develop something like imposter syndrome when you have all this, uh, uh, you know, graphic, uh, recognition that you worked hard to get where you are? Very, very insightful question. Very good question. So I think it, it probably, or one of uh, the more common cause, if I may put it that way, is uh, <laughs> what we in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, called a cognitive distortion, right? Which just means um, our minds sometimes are put in automatic pattern uh, mm-hmm. of thinking something that are not, that simply is not true. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, the mind selectively uh, attributed things to different things. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, the mind has selective attention. So anything that's good, uh, the mind just your mind just makes you believe that it's not because of you, yours. So even though you achieve a lot of things, it's just because of luck. It's just because of other people's help because your mind makes you believe that you're not good enough as an overarching team. So they can diffuse, they can almost selectively differentiate what happens to you, better or good, based on that overarching or core thoughts, core automatic thoughts. Um, so why would the human brain engage in this? Is it some sort of protective mechanism to uh, protect against um, a, a sense of devastating failure if you do struggle in your career or don't, don't get hired uh, by your desired job or something? Great question. So many believe that it, uh, you know, this sort of automatic core thinking pattern originate from childhood. Uh, right in terms of just in our lives, it 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 has a long route, so to speak, uh, going back to our childhood. Because uh, sometimes we just need to to survive. We just need to do certain things, or in this way, think a certain ways uh, to help us get there. Uh, and then unknowingly, we keep using this thinking pattern again and again and again throughout mm. our adulthood, and it just becomes ingrained. Although most of the time, we didn't realize that it's there mm. um, in our brain. Oh, I, I can see a, an athletic um, 
relevance here where at some point um, you are overmatched and intimidated when you walk out to uh, practice uh, for the first day at for the UCLA football team and you're a walk-on thinking, wow, these guys are big and strong and fast and I don't really deserve to be here. So I better work my ass off and hustle more than anyone else on the field so I don't get blown out the side door never to return. And so you have this fighters, this battling mentality rather than uh, stroking your own ego and coming in with too much swagger and getting it handed to you. You, you by necessity have that humbleness, but then when the humbleness is gone, overboard <laughs> years later or whatever i think you know the the actors and the, the fragile ego that we uh, that, they, that they seem to have and that we get to read about in the gossip magazines where um you know that you're only as good or bad as your your last movie and so the insecurity is rampant and um that can be you know what was once a a, a powerful weapon where you were you know going to apply that determination and not take anything for granted at a certain point, we have to, I guess, strike a balance to be able to pat ourselves on the back at times and say, yes, I am a world's leading authority on telepsychiatry, and I'd love to talk about it, you know? Right, absolutely, 100%. Like you said, Brett, I think it's it's all about balance, right? Everything in life, I would say, is a spectrum. And the key, I guess, is to find that uh, balance right in the middle. Now, what do we do with, I, I mean, this is... Uh, I'm sure a defined uh, category of mental health where we have um, people on the other end of the spectrum, especially in this comparison, uh, instant gratification, social media driven culture where we have the little superstars. If we're thinking of, um, the, you know, the, the youth that are growing up with helicopter and lawnmower parents telling them that they're uh, God's gift and they are going to go be president because, of course, it's possible and anything you dream. And um, then they don't get accepted into the, the four preferred colleges. And so um, they're and then all the way into adult life where um, you hear that term narcissist bandied about all the time, especially in the dating scene and um, people in the workplace where they think they're God's gift and that their voice reigns over everything else. Um, how do we navigate those waters where I guess that would be the opposite of imposter syndrome is the narcissistic syndrome. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that's why I think, uh, especially for kids, uh, it's important to try to implement the growth mindset or focusing mm -hmm. in the process for them, right? So not, not the outcomes. What I mean by that is, for example, instead of praising uh, the kids on, oh, hey, you're so smart, you've got an A, or hey, you're so strong, you make it uh, to the team with your, within your first tryout, uh, but perhaps try to emphasize the, the fact that they're uh, not you know, resilient, they're working really hard towards their goal, they're not giving up given the first ob obstacle, and things along those lines. So that way, uh, they're more focused, uh, one, on the process, and two, they didn't necessarily um, or fully uh, relate their self-identity with mm. just their achievement down the road. Well said. I, I think you're uh, honoring the work of Carol Dweck, author of Mindset, yes. Stanford, uh, so popular. I'm thinking of my very favorite parenting article called The Inverse Power of Praise, How Not to Talk to Your Kids. Uh, we'll have a link for that in the show notes, but it, it talks about um, what you just expressed here, where we want to put the emphasis on uh, on their effort, on the process, on personal growth, rather than um, you know jump over to uh, comparison, measuring, and judging, and you're the best, and and all that kind of thing. 
And um, boy, that's a um, that's something you see left and right all over the place. Is um, you know uh, forgetting about the um, the process and just trying to obsess with uh, the results and the status and the consumption and all the things that go with it. Uh, I had uh, a great talk with Ashley Merriman a long time ago on the podcast, author, co-author of Nurture Shock and Top Dog. And she talks about, you know, we've, we've um, often been told to focus on the effort, don't attach your self-esteem to the outcome. And she wanted to offer up a little uh, a nuance or another level of sophistication there. And what we want to do is emphasize the effort toward improvement so if you're just pounding your head against the wall and making the effort and getting congratulated for that, that could easily lead you off track and you're doing stupid shit with your life. So um, if you're not destined to be an Ivy League student and you're trying to make more effort to bring yourself up from a C average to a B minus, um, it, it's not going to happen for you. Same if the, in the athletic world where um, the poor kid who um, doesn't make the basketball team is now told to go put in more and more and more effort where maybe they um, want to you know, cut their ties with something that's not uh, their destiny, um, reframe their goal to something more realistic, and then be darn sure that any effort that you put into any peak performance endeavor is um, appropriate, well-chosen, well-guided so that you can reference improvement. And so when your kid goes and uh, works on their vocabulary words for an hour and comes out expecting a lollipop and a trip to the ice cream store for putting in all that hard work, um, let's make sure they weren't goofing around with um, a video game playing in the background and the effort didn't really count for something. And I love that nuance that Ashley offered up. But again, um, you know, the, the emphasis is on the effort and on personal improvement rather than uh, comparison culture and, and I guess leading toward imposter syndrome someday if you are obsessed with results only. Yes, absolutely. That's such a great point, definitely. And uh, to your point as well, uh, the, the tie, the strong tie to that identity, right? For example, the identity of a quote-unquote high achiever or the athletic identity, the smart student identity. Uh, if you're so attached to it instead of the process, so to speak, it could very... Uh, much be a risk factor uh, of getting imposter syndrome um, in, in that uh, relationship. And depression, anxiety, I suppose. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so, Dr. Sarah, how do you do it? You have two, two kids under two. You're getting this thriving practice going. What are some of your um, tactics and strategies for keeping a healthy, happy, balanced life and uh, the balancing your career endeavors with your personal life and so forth. Yes. Um, so it's a work in progress, right? <laughs> so I, I try at least for myself, uh, first always try to reflect, uh, on my own why, meaning, uh, my personal why, why am I doing all this, right? My own pros and cons, uh, that I, uh, already, brainstorm myself to come into an informed decision of choosing to pursue all this. And why is that important? I think because if we're just simply um, listening or looking up to others people, uh, others people's why, um, you know, not ourselves. we're humans, it's very easy to get ups and downs throughout life. So when the downs come, if we don't have a strong personal sense of why we're doing things uh, in relation to what we want, not what everybody else's want, it gets very hard. Uh, two, on a more practical level, I try to 
quote-unquote multitask. And why I put the quotes on that is because um, I believe if we're doing something that uh, requires brain, brain power, it's good to single-handedly focus on that task. But we could always combine it with quote-unquote mindless tasks, like doing dishes, for mm-hmm. example, doing errands, driving, what have you. So I try to put in my exercise uh, whenever I can while I work, for example. Uh, you know, just get a little stepper from Amazon, uh, a little floor desk that I put on top of my desk to help prop it up uh, mm-hmm. to the point where I can stand and type. Um, and then that way I could not only save time in terms of doing valuable work, but also get my steps in, get my cardios in uh, for the day. Um, and then I try to implement, third, I try to implement simple stress management techniques. For example, one of my favorite, because it's so easy and can be done everywhere, including in a meeting room, um, is deep breathing. Uh, a lot of you probably are familiar with this. Uh, with me, deep breathing uh, ideally would include belly breathing, diaphragm breathing. Uh, and I also count while doing deep breathing. So I count as six when inhaling, six when pausing. Six when exhaling, mm. do it a couple of times, and that way it could just activate my parasympathetic system um, to take over the sympathetic, the fight or flight response, uh, and uh, enable me to think uh, more clearly throughout the day. That those would be a few practical tips that I personally use. Right. So the breathing is, I think, instant access to changing your your blood chemistry and your autonomic nervous system state. Why is that so effective? What kind of mechanism is working there? That's a good question. Uh, I think mostly it it, it it's really it relates to the parasympathetic um, nervous system that take control of so many of our body responses associated with anxiety one and two associated with the part of our brain uh, the earlier part or or the reptile quote unquote side part of our brain uh, that took over, right? So when that part of the brain took over, our higher functioning brain, the prefrontal cortex part of the brain, which is responsible for clear thinking, for executive um, functioning and whatnot, kind of take a back seat. So in order to Mm. switch that over, we need to activate uh, those parasympathetic um, system as a whole, which can be done easily by deep breathing. Love it. Inhale for six, hold it for six, exhale for six, and you're instantly calm. Dr. Sarah Pospos, we love this quick look at uh, the future of medicine. Uh, We can follow you at Lifestyle Telepsychiatry on Instagram, and your website is also Mm -hmm. lifestyletelepsychiatry.com. Any other ways we can connect with you? Those are the best things to do. Yes. And again, if you want to get in touch, if you're in California, uh, my next available appointment by telehealth is in September. Uh, Or if you're not in California, uh, I also do offer free resources, uh, which you can get at my website, lifestyletelepsychiatry.com slash subscribe. Right on. Thank you, Dr. Sarah. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new 
zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkerns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.